Uh, great. Thanks so much, Lisa, for reading that with a croaky voice. <laughs> well done. Let's, uh, let's pray as we, we come to this passage. We're going to need God's help. Father, we thank you so much that all scripture, even uh, parts of it like this passage, which are harder for us to hear, we, we thank you that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for us to teach and correct and rebuke and train us that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so we pray that you would do that for us now by your spirit. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I wonder if you've ever found yourself buying a counterfeit. I remember as a teenager uh, buying the odd pirate CD. Uh, please don't tell the authorities. Uh, in St. Albans Market. Uh, back then, at least, you knew what you were buying, right? You had to go to the dodgy market stall near the back street and buy what was obviously produced on someone's home computer and printer. You, you could tell that it was a, a fake. But with the, advert of, with the advent of online shopping, the problem of counterfeit goods has exploded. Uh, so last year, Amazon seized more than 3 million fake products being stored in their warehouses. They've invested more than $900 million trying to sort the problem out. They've employed more than 12,000 people whose job is to, is to protect consumers from buying counterfeit goods. But still the problem continues to grow. Knock-off counterfeits are everywhere in every form. Clothes, handbags, trainers, jewellery, electronics, gadgets, you name it, you can buy a counterfeit of it. But it doesn't just apply to products. There is also such a thing as a counterfeit Christian. That's the subject of uh, 2 Peter chapter 2 this morning. Counterfeit Christianity. If you've been with us uh, so far for this series in 2 Peter, this chapter might feel to you like a little bit of a gear crunch. Chapter 1 is all the good stuff that Peter writes about. The encouragement to live a godly life in view of the coming of Jesus, the rich welcome that awaits us into his eternal kingdom. We saw that reminder that we can trust the eyewitness apostles and the reliable prophets with what they tell us about the return of Jesus and his coming kingdom. But then we get to chapter 2 and suddenly the tone changes. Peter starts talking about false teachers, about heresy, about judgment, about dogs eating their own vomit. And perhaps as some of you feel a bit uncomfortable about that. Maybe you feel like asking Peter, you know, couldn't you just have written a bit more of chapter one and left this chapter two stuff to another time? You know, do, do we really need all this for 22 verses? Or maybe you sort of, okay, Peter wrote it, that's fine. Maybe you feel like asking me, even if Peter wrote it, surely we don't need to preach on it, especially not for two weeks in a row. That's right, we're coming back to it next week. More dogs eating their own vomit. There's something in us, isn't there, that, that kind of recoils from a passage like this. We sense, we know it will be unpopular and unpalatable. We, we draw back because Peter's tone and the force of his denunciation is so strong. And I get that. Right? We're, we're, we're rightly in some ways reluctant to say that's a false teaching. 
even more reluctant to say that person is a false teacher. In our society, tolerance is our great virtue, and this all feels a bit harsh, arrogant, narrow-minded, judgmental. It feels intolerant. To be honest, part of me would rather jump over chapter 2, go straight to chapter 3, and talk about the great stuff, the promise of a new heavens and a new earth, a home where, where righteousness dwells. But if what we saw in chapter 1 is true, then this too is scripture. These words are God's words to us. This is why, by the way, we are committed to, to sort of doing what we're doing now, uh, expository preaching. That is, we, we work through books of the Bible in a systematic way, and we pay attention to everything that God says in his word, not just the bits that we like or the bits that we're familiar with. If we do that, if we just sort of pick and choose the bits of the Bible that we like, ignoring the bits that we don't, if we do that, we will not hear everything that Jesus wants to say to us. And we'll end up with a Jesus in our own image, one that we've made up, not the real one. For a healthy spiritual life, we need to pay attention to the whole counsel of God including parts like this which are harder for us to hear. And it's just part of being a faithful disciple of Jesus, isn't it? Matthew 28, Jesus said, teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. And that includes listening to Jesus' command to beware false teachers. And I just want to point out, the source of what Peter says here is actually Jesus himself. It was Jesus who warned us, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. And if you read the whole of the New Testament, Peter's not alone in passing on that message to the churches they wrote to. This isn't his sort of hobby horse. Paul, Peter, John, Jude, they all give attention to dealing with the issue of false teachers. So if the Holy Spirit moved the Apostle Peter to give nearly half of his last words to addressing this problem, I think we probably need to hear it. Um, so next week, we're going to look at verses 10 to 22. This week, we're, we're just going to focus on verses 1 to 9. We're going to see three things, two warnings, one encouragement. So here's the first thing we see. Beware their constant presence. Beware their constant presence. In chapter 1, Peter reminds us of the truth and trustworthiness of the scriptures. You remember we saw the apostles did not make up their message and neither did the prophets before them. We can trust what they tell us. Their words are God's words to us. But, verse 1, there were also false prophets among the people just as there will be false teachers among you. It's a matter of history. Read the Old Testament. <laughs> there were true prophets, but there were also false prophets among the Old Testament people of God. Like the true prophets, they claimed to speak for God, but they didn't. They spoke from their own mind, not from the mouth of the Lord. Now, this is what the Lord says through Jeremiah. Prophets and priests are like all practice deceit. 
They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. The true prophets, like Jeremiah, had announced God's coming judgment on Israel for their persistent rebellion. But the false prophets, they were around telling the people, no, 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 no. That's just an empty threat. God will never actually do that. Peace, peace. There's nothing to worry about. Destruction will never come. Exile will never happen. But it did. And so they proved to be false prophets. And just as there were false prophets among the Old Testament people of God, so there will be, you can be sure, false teachers among the New Testament people of God. It's a guarantee. There will be false teachers among you. Just at a very basic level then, you must have a category in your thinking for counterfeit Christianity. You just need to have a category for that. Not everyone who says they are a Christian is a true Christian. Not everyone who says they're a church is a true church. Not every person who claims to teach God's word does so truly. Not every person who claims the title bishop or reverend or pastor is truly a servant of God. Counterfeits exist. Counterfeits exist. And like with online shopping, the internet means there is more of it than ever before, and it is easier to access than ever before. Counterfeit Christianity is literally everywhere, on YouTube, social media, podcasts, books, even the God TV channel, rife with it. And please know this, just because it's popular does not mean it's legit. Look at verse 2. Many will follow. Many will follow. Do you know, if you go on Amazon and just search like the Christian bestsellers, some of the most popular, best-selling, so-called Christian books are written by false teachers. Some of the biggest churches in the world are led by false teachers. Which obviously raises a question, doesn't it? How can I spot the counterfeit? Well, that's a good question. And that's basically what we're going to do next week. We're going to come back to chapter 2 and think about how we spot the counterfeit. But for today, I just want you to have a category for this. Have a category for counterfeit Christianity and false teachers. Need to know it exists. But let me just say here, the existence of counterfeits is not a reason to reject the genuine article. There are fake handbags and pirate DVDs. And in the same way, you may have come across people who claimed to be Christians, whose, but whose life showed very little evidence of Jesus. You may have come across people who called themselves pastors, but who were committing adultery or embezzling money and all the rest. Counterfeits exist. But that doesn't mean there's no such thing as a genuine Christian. And nor should you judge the real thing by the counterfeit. If you've been put off Christianity by what you suspect might be a counterfeit, please just get to know someone who seems to be a genuine Christian. 
and judge Christianity on, on, on them. They will not be perfect. Far from it. But their life will display a, a genuine likeness to Jesus. Humility and integrity, repentance and forgiveness, love and joy. So we need to have a, cate- a category for counterfeit Christianity. And Peter says we need to beware their constant presence because false teachers are guaranteed, even among us. That's what Peter says in, in verse 1. There will be false teachers among you. Now, he, I, I don't want you to sort of start looking around. Um, Peter doesn't necessarily mean by that that they will be present in every single local church, in all places, at all times. But what he means is that they will be present in every single generation, everywhere, until the day Jesus returns. And that's going to be a big problem for us. And part of the problem is because they are among us. You know, false teachers look like they're part of the church. They claim to be Christians and part of the church. A a counterfeit Christian never turns up with a t-shirt saying, Beware, I'm a counterfeit Christian. I'm a false teacher. Doesn't happen like that. They have a kind of insidious influence from the inside. They present themselves as sheep. But they're wolves. They present themselves as spiritual instructors, but they are imposters, posers, pretending to proclaim God's word, while secretly and subtly introducing destructive heresies, distorting, even denying what the Bible says with their fabricated stories and plastic words. There were false prophets, and there will be false teachers. So beware their constant presence. And secondly, oh, you missed my fun picture. Beware their destructive heresies. Beware their destructive heresies. The the reason that we need to beware and, and to be on our guard against false teachers is because this is what they do. They secretly introduce destructive heresies. Um, I'm not going to go into this in detail, but basically a heresy is a distortion of something of fundamental importance to Christian faith. So it might be something that distorts who God is or who Jesus is, changing something about their identity. Or it might be something that twists the nature of the gospel itself or or changes what salvation is in a serious way. So, for example... It's okay for us to differ on issues of conscience like politics, but it is heresy to call something, you know, okay, that the Bible says is sin. It's heresy to do that. It's it's okay for us to differ about baptism, but it's heresy to deny the need for forgiveness, which baptism pictures. It's okay for us to differ on our positions of the end times, but it's heresy to deny the literal return of Jesus. That's what these false teachers were doing. Like the false prophets before them, they were denying the literal return of Jesus and the future judgment, and they said, peace, peace. And they lived accordingly. And in doing so, Peter says they are denying the sovereign Lord who bought them. 
Now, like I said, we're going to consider their message in a bit more detail next week. But for now, I just want you to notice that their denial of Jesus is not so much with their lips, but with their lives. These are people who claim to know Jesus. They claim to serve Jesus. But they are deceivers because they have not actually submitted to Jesus as the sovereign Lord. And so they are denying the one who spent everything, even giving up his own life on the cross to buy us and redeem us. They're saying, yeah, 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 Jesus bought me. But by the way they live, calling people towards the very sins that Jesus died on the cross to pay for, they are denying him. That is why they are so deadly and dangerous. Because they tell people, your sin doesn't matter. Or that, that thing that the Bible calls sin, oh, it's not really. There won't be any divine judgment for it. But in doing that, they put people on a path that leads only to destruction. These people are not just guilty of teaching minor errors on marginal matters. They are destructive heresies, serious errors with eternal consequences. They bring swift destruction on themselves. And as we'll see next week, on those who follow them too. But I guess the question is, is it really that bad? Is, is it really that serious? Well, let's go back to our counterfeit goods on Amazon. Uh, most of the things that you can buy on Amazon that are fake are not that bad. Annoying, yes. Frustrating, yes. Uh, to waste your money on a fake is irritating. But it's not deadly or destructive or dangerous. But of course, it all depends on what you're buying, doesn't it? If you buy a fake designer handbag, the only consequence is that you've wasted your money on something that will break in a few weeks. It's not that big deal. But what if you buy a fake oven glove? Now, that's a bit more dangerous, isn't it? Because you end up putting it on, getting up the hot pan out of the oven. You're going to burn your hand. More serious, but it's still not life-threatening. Not really worthy of the person who sold you the counterfeit oven glove being destroyed. I think we'd all agree. But what if you buy a counterfeit car seat pram combo for a baby? See, on Amazon, if you buy the counterfeit version of this, you can save yourself a tidy 250 quid. Bargain. But if you're in an accident with the counterfeit car seat, it will crumple like a cardboard box with deadly consequences. See, some counterfeits are very dangerous indeed. Um, for example, fake pharmaceutical products. The UN uh, last year released a report estimating that something like 500,000 people die every year in sub-Saharan Africa because they have fake medicine. Fake medicine. Uh, imagine a parent with a young child who contracts malaria the parent has listened well to the information campaign through their pregnancy, notices the symptoms straight away, high fever, sweats, chills, headaches, muscle aches, tiredness, sickness, and they go straight to the doctor. 
They're gonna, the parents won't eat that week because they've spent all their money on this medicine. But they do it anyway because they know malaria is serious but treatable. But a week later, the child dies in its mother's arms. Why? Because the medicine was fake. That's what false teaching is like. See, every single human being is infected with a deadly disease. Sin. The symptoms are all around us. In our broken world, in our broken relationships, in our own broken hearts. And every single human being, therefore, is destined for a metaphorical car crash with God's judgment. But sin is treatable. The car crash is survivable. If we turn away from our sin and turn to Jesus and receive what he offers us in the gospel, forgiveness, a new heart filled with the Holy Spirit, we will have life forever. We will be saved from that coming judgment into a perfect new world. My friend, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, that offer is for you. Please will you receive it. But what if what you're being offered is fake medicine? A counterfeit car seat, a counterfeit gospel from a counterfeit Jesus from the mouth of a false teacher. If you take the medicine they give you, you will still die in your sins and face God's condemnation. Is that serious? If there's a scale of counterfeits, if false, it is, I'll ask you, is false teaching with the handbags over here? Or is false teaching with the counterfeit car seats and the fake pharmaceuticals? On that scale, false teaching is somewhere over in Stanley Park Avenue. This is about heaven or hell, salvation or destruction, eternal life or eternal death. That's why this matters so much. That's why we cannot mess around with this. We cannot just let it slide, skip over to Peter chapter 2. That's why Peter gives warning after warning after warning for 22 verses. And it is not a word too long. Because it is of eternal consequence and therefore of infinite significance. Beware their destructive heresies. And thirdly and finally, be assured. Be assured. God will judge and he will rescue. He will rescue and judge. Verses 3 to 9. One of the things I've realized as a parent is that, just as I did, my children will sometimes misbehave simply to push the boundaries. They are testing if the promised discipline will actually happen. So when we say to Lydia, listen, do not do that or you will go to your room. The question that Lydia is wondering is, are they actually going to follow through? 
Or is it an idle threat, an empty promise? And it's exactly the same here in in 2 Peter. And yet again, the whole thing turns on whether Jesus really will come back to judge the living and the dead. See, the false teachers, they're banking that that's an idle threat, an empty promise. In their minds, what seems, I guess from our perspective, like a long delay means that it will never happen. They assume judgment delayed equals judgment cancelled. But in verses 3 to 9, Peter wants to assure us God's coming judgment is not an empty promise. There is a day of judgment coming. And on that day, those who try to destroy the church through their false teaching and counterfeit Christianity will themselves be destroyed. But those who persevere in trusting Jesus and living godly lives will be rescued. And the reason that we can be totally sure that's the case is because of God's own proven track record in history. So verses 4 to 9, they work by building through a series of examples, all from the early chapters of Genesis, that prove that God's promise of judgment is not an empty promise, and neither is his promise to save. So verse 9 concludes in this way, if this is so, that he brought judgment and and saved people in those examples in history, if this is so, then the Lord knows. He knows how to deliver the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. Gives us three examples of judgment, two examples of rescue. Uh, So the first is in verse 4. If God did not spare the angels who sinned, And now, Peter could either be referring to an angelic rebellion following the fall of Satan or their sin in the days of Noah. I think it's more likely to be the latter. It doesn't really matter. The point is that God doesn't even allow angels to get away with sin. When they sinned, he saw. He was not asleep. And he sent them to the dark underworld to be held for final judgment. If he did not even spare angels in the past... He will certainly not spare false teachers in the future, however flashy they are now. The second example is in verse 5. If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people. He's talking about the story of Noah. We looked at that in October last year. The world was filled with violence and corruption. And when he saw their sin, he saw it. He was not asleep. And he sent a flood that wiped wicked humanity off the face of the earth. If he did not spare the ancient world in the past, he will certainly not spare our world for the same sin in the future. The final example is verse 6. If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning to ashes, made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Their city was filled with greed and sexual immorality. And God saw he was not asleep and he sent fire from heaven to bring his judgment upon them, a forecast of the fiery judgment that will come in the future. God's false teachers are deadly and destructive, but they are also damned. In Peter's examples, judgment did not necessarily come immediately, but it did come eventually. Just because it hasn't come yet 
does not mean it never will. Each of those historical events in the past, they're like prophetic anticipations of the future. As Peter puts it in verse 6, they are examples of what is going to happen. They're not just one-off events relegated to the past. They are pictures that point to the future. If God brought judgment then, he will again in the future. Guys, I, I know that these are sobering, serious things. But we need to know, God is not a cuddly teddy bear who only comforts and never condemns. How else could God oppose tyrants, defend the innocent, protect the weak? Guys, our God does not yawn at atrocities. He does not shrug at evil. He does not compromise with corruption. He is gloriously holy and just. And he will judge. But he will not only judge. He will also save. Think of Noah building the ark, preaching repentance in view of the coming flood, and how many scoffers there must have been. What an idiot. Building a boat in the middle of the desert, not a cloud in the sky. Noah, you are stupid for thinking a flood is coming. But when the flood came, Noah was rescued. He was saved in the ark through the watery judgment. It was the same for Lot, distressed by what he saw in the society outside his window, but he persevered in trusting God. He didn't give up. He did not do that perfectly. Lot was far from perfect. But he was righteous because he trusted the Lord. And when judgment came, he was saved. Think about it. It would have been so easy for Noah and Lot to give in, wouldn't it? They were under immense pressure to deny the sovereign Lord. I know that may well be the same for you. The pressure that you feel to deny Jesus with what you say or how you live. At school, in your workplace, among your friends or family. I know it feels like it would bring great relief to give in to the world's ways and to go back to the sin that Jesus has called you away from. Like Noah, like Lot, we experience many trials this side of glory. Many trials. Here's the promise. The Lord knows. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. He knows. And he will guard you and keep you and preserve you and help you. And one day, when judgment does come, when Jesus returns, he will save you and vindicate you. He knows how to do it. Look at his track record. Just as he did with Noah and Lot, he can do it. Keep trusting him. His promise is not empty. He will save the godly. And his threat is not idle. He will judge the false teachers. 
Until then, beware their constant presence and beware their destructive heresies and keep persevering with this strong assurance. God knows how to rescue the godly and how to keep the the unrighteous for judgment. He knows how to judge and he will. He knows how to rescue and he will from all our trials to lead us home to a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.